You're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, hosted by Luke Hector, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. This show is about board and card games, and dedicated to you, the people who play them. Whether you're a hardcore gamer or a newcomer to the hobby, I hope this show is both informative and entertaining. I invite you to sit back and enjoy. It's the end of 2015 and this show reflects back on that. Well, for the most part. We start off with my first impressions of games played in the last month, followed by a discussion segment on 2015 as a whole, be it news, publishers, games out, themes, you name it, and then ending with the definitive top 10 of 2015. Well, definitive in my opinion anyway. Hello everyone, episode 39 and coincidentally the end of 2015 as well and what a year it has been for board games. This has probably been one of the best years I can think of for board games. It's just generally been a smash throughout the year even in the months where it's normally dry but we'll get on to more of that later. As for what's been going on, well, the main event recently has been Dice Portsmouth's Action Day that was held only just this last weekend on Sunday, where they rented out a big room in the historic dockyard in Portsmouth and basically held another one of their gaming days. This is where they basically get people to come in and play games, demo their copies, demo my copies, demo any copies they feel like, and essentially just get an idea of what board gaming is. After all, the Board Game Cafe wants to introduce new people to the hobby, and, well, not to put it finely, they have mentioned hints about a venue, a possible venue in the works, so, one fingers crossed, we're going to get this done by springtime, I believe, 2015. Please, 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 I really want this board game cafe to succeed. But the event was great fun. I essentially spent the whole day demoing games, mostly Deluxe Takinoko and Dice City, because those two seemed to be quite popular at the time. But in general, just basically helping out. There was only really two of them there to demo games, and it was very busy. I mean, this took off like crazy. So I couldn't really sit there and play games whilst they were having to run around. So I opted to basically help in and demo the games whilst they were also doing the same themselves. Three was better than two and it was quite busy but we managed it and it was a successful day all round so kudos to Dice Portsmouth there. Other than that it's basically just been trying to play some more games that I've been getting reviewed and going to the occasional game day hosted by various other pubs in the area. I believe I went down to Paul Grogan's Neck of the Woods around Exeter Way and essentially joined in a game day there and that was a good laugh as well despite the fact that my car battery decided to die and I had to wait a whole day before coming back to Portsmouth but well never mind thankfully Betty my car is now up and running and purring nicely as for my work well I've now left my current job I've mentioned before that I just could not wait to get out of that job I've now officially finished I left there on the 16th of December and I was literally buzzing with happiness on the way home singing to just about every 80s cheese tune you can think of 
Now I'm just enjoying my time off until early January when I start my new role on the, at, sorry, at the Southern Co-op head office over in Portsmouth Lakeside. Apparently, one of the guys who runs the Dice Portsmouth crew, Ricky, actually works in that same building as well. So, hmm, maybe that could mean I could get some games in at lunchtime. That would be pretty awesome, actually. And maybe that would introduce some more people that I work with to what it is I exactly do. I mean, let's face it, I'm a tax accountant coming in who likes board games. Yeah, that's not exactly doing me any favours on the whole social front, is it? Despite the fact that I'm generally a social, sociable sort of guy. So, well, we'll just have to see how that goes. But I'm looking forward to starting the new role. Smart casual wear, no more time sheets, much more laid back. Even though it's still going to be a tough role and I can't, you know, sit back and do nothing. So, you know, fingers crossed that'll work well. As for accommodation, I'm still living in my flat, and even though I can't really upgrade to video as set, I have now, just recently today, in fact, today on the 22nd of December, received a new gaming headset, a Sennheiser 363D, I believe it is, or something like that, and from what I can tell, the microphone seems to work a lot better on this one than it did on my old Logitech, it seems very much more bassy. But we'll see, I'll leave you guys to give me some feedback on that, this is going to be the headset I'll be using for some time now. Of course, I haven't given up on looking for other accommodation. I'm still checking out the new builds in the area, possibly some old second-hand ones if I can find anything. Basically, I just need a house that's big enough to hold three bedrooms and so that I can convert one of them into a games room. I want my IKEA shelf to be alongside the wall in there. I want a proper geekers on table. I, as soon as I know where I'm going to live and when, I will put in an order for one of those and I big table and then I'll start thinking about upgrading the video you know the YouTube channel has been sitting dormant on YouTube getting new subscribers who hopefully have seen my notes about the fact that I couldn't do videos anymore I just don't have the layout or equipment to so hopefully there'll be a chance to get back into that and then maybe as I if I'm able to get back into video I'll be able to start resuming that YouTube channel and maybe even contributing a bit more to the Dice Tower and maybe even go on their breakfast show. Who knows? Depends what Tom Vassell wants at the end of the day or what happens with the show at that point. But this is all speculation, so we'll just have to see how things go. But come on, fingers crossed, there's a potential property I'll be looking at when they get more details in January, and that's exactly what I'm looking for in terms of distance from work, the ability to convert into a games room. The only problem now is price. So we'll just have to see how that goes. Anyway, that's enough about my personal life, so let's get into some board games, and well, first of all, actually, let me just mention my month in review, shall we say. If you take a look at the blog, you'll see that the reviews I have done during the month of December to date have included Onirim, one of the Omniverse games that I've been doing essentially a trilogy of reviews for. Sylveon should be coming out fairly soon later this month. Also, Raptor, a very cool two-player game, which might get a mention or so later, you'll have to see. Smash Up Munchkin Expansion, the somewhat cartoony Munchkin expansion to the popular Smash Up game. I was a little bit hesitant on trying this one, but look at my review to see what my final thoughts were. Then there was Ghostbusters, a board game that was subject to a little bit of controversy on Kickstarter. And, well, not to spoil it too much wasn't exactly that impressed. Check out my written review for that. And then finally, recently, Seven Wonders Duel. Again, you are going to hear about that later. Spoiler alert. But, oh well, I can't, what can I say? It's a good game. So check out my review for that. Anyway, more on that later. Here's some first impressions for the last month.
First up we have Koo. But not the coup that you're thinking of, and certainly not the one that I've already stated I wasn't a big fan of, but I'm talking about Coup Rebellion G54. Don't ask me why on earth it's called Rebellion G54, it's a bit of a weird name, but oh well, we'll leave it to Indie Board and Cards to give us the reason for that maybe in their own time. But this is effectively just Coup, but with more players. Sorry, not more players, but with more people that you can use. Let me put it this way. Coup originally had a fixed set of characters with special powers that you used in order to bluff your way past losing your two lives and taking out everyone else. Now, I didn't particularly like that version of Coup because I thought that one or two of the characters were vastly overpowered and basically it all divulged down to everyone just calling out the name Duke repeatedly, endlessly and endlessly. But this one is a bit of a twist. It's still exactly the same rules as Coup, except now you have 25 variable characters that you can use during the game. So you can, well, not during, not, not all 25 at once, but you can basically play with five out of the 25. And the powers of each vary. Some are more geared towards bluffing, some deduction, some negotiation, and some are just pure luck. But this is a big improvement for the game. Now, there's still not enough for me to go, oh yeah, I love this game. But now I will happily sit down and play this one if someone offers it. Because those variations in the characters mean that you get rid of that problem where one is so vastly overpowered. I mean, granted, there is still an equivalent to the Duke in that game. But if I own this, I just simply wouldn't use him. I could just chuck him out and use something like the Farmer, which is similar. You Instead of taking three bucks, you take three bucks and then give one to another player. That already is a much better twist on that character because now, A, you're not getting such a substantial amount of money, and B, there's a negotiation aspect with all the other players as to who you're going to give that one buck to. And that could be enough to let them do an assassination with the Gorilla, a.k.a. Assassin, or for them to perform a coup, but can you negotiate with them not to perform the coup on yourself? That's the key. And just little things like that. And there are some other really cool characters to use. So, yeah, this doesn't really elevate Koo above the other bluffing games I prefer. But it has certainly been a massive improvement over the original Koo. And I'm glad to see this one around. So if people bring it to the table, I'll happily play this one. That's Koo Rebellion G54. Next up, we have this weird little two-player game by Uri Rosenberg from Mayfair Games. I've not played this one since it was released last year, but recently, when I was playtesting Time Stories with some friends of mine, I had a chance to basically play Patchwork as a two-player game whilst we were waiting for one person to arrive. Patchwork is this little two-player game, how many times have I said that now, where you are basically building a quilt. Yeah, that doesn't exactly sound very thematic or interesting, does it? But... Bear with me here. You have this little 9x9 game board and there are all these different patches of varying shapes and sizes and god knows what else laid out in a ring around this central board which is almost like a bit of a turn order track. And the idea is, is that you use buttons as currency to buy the various patches to put on your 9x9 board. And the idea is, is that ideally you want to get a 7x7 square because that gives you bonus points. But it's not the end of the world if you don't. Essentially you are trying to use up as many squares as possible because any unused squares are worth negative points. But it's really cool how it works because each patch usually has one of three things. It has a cost in buttons 
and buttons are victory points at the end of the game, so you are spending victory points in order to get patches. It also has a time factor, which means that every time you take that patch, some of them take longer to sew than others, and it moves you further along that central board. When your piece reaches the center, you can't do anything else, and basically the other player gets to finish off until they get to the center. So the more time you take on certain patches, the less stuff you can do. And then on top of that, they also have buttons printed on the patches, which act as income, which periodically give you more buttons during the game, so you can get a nice little engine going with that. This is a really interesting little game, because on top of that, you know, how do you select the patches? Well, they're laid out in a ring, as I said, but you have this marker that dictates that you can only buy one of the free patches directly after the marker. And when you buy the patch, the marker shifts forward and suddenly some new options are available but still only the forward free past the marker. So this is really cool because you've got to think, where's my opponent in relation to me? How many goes am I going to get before my opponent does? Because if your marker's behind them on the turn order track, you keep going. It's a bit like Takedo, where if you're at the back, you keep going until you overtake someone. Well, this is exactly the same way in how it works. And so you could get multiple turns in a row and then get several patches that you were really eyeballing. But you've also got to check out, oh, hang on, if I buy that, what are they going to get? What am I giving them the option to do? And it's just really cool how that seems to work. I thought this was a really neat little two-player game. If I needed any more two-player games, I'd probably consider this one for the collection because I just think it is. it takes some well-known rules and it uses them really nicely and is over and done with in between 15 to 30 minutes. It's pretty neat. So I've got to give Uri Rosenberg credit for this one. He's already a pretty good designer in my books and I think this is a neat little Euro-like two-player game where you've got plenty of choices, plenty to think about, plenty to consider and despite the fact that the theme is a little bit weird, you know, patching a quilt together and getting buttons as income, it's kind of weird. But as an abstract game, it's pretty decent. So if you're looking for that sort of two-player game to play with your spouse or something like that, then give this one a look. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Patchwork. This next one is going to be a bit of a controversial one, I think. Now, Stronghold Games, to give you a bit of a background, have been starting this whole designer's best line. They already kicked off with Porta Negra, where they got uh, Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling to do a board game. And I've not played that one, so I don't know what it's like. But I got to play their second in the line, which is 504 by Freedom and Freeze. This got so much hyper essence, it is unbelievable. It was effectively almost like a toolbox game, where you have these nine modules that all basically have different rules attached to them. It might be shares, it might be race rules, it might be uh, pick up and deliver, it might be uh, combat, for example, I don't know, something like that. But various different modules that you could combine three of them together to create an entirely new game. The idea being that this had 504 different games, different combinations that you could play. Now, as an idea, this is very innovative, so I'll give him great credit for innovation because when you look at the rulebook, yes, it looks complicated, but it's a work of genius the way that it's like a flip chart and you put the modules in the various orders and then you just read down those three modules to get the rules. 
despite the fact that that seems to take forever to absorb and then teach people, which seems a little bit detrimental to trying to enjoy a game in relatively quick time. If you look at the playing time on BoardGameGeek for this, it says 30 to 120 minutes. That's one hell of a long span to say how long your game takes. I'm guaranteeing it's going to take you probably 15 minutes at least, maybe 15 to 30, in order to set the game up and teach it, because there's already a lot of components in the box. Although I wouldn't say they were very good components. We're talking clip art style tiles. A bunch of wooden pieces that don't really relate to what they're supposed to be. And yeah, just generally not very not very good in my opinion. I mean, I thought the component quality could have been upped considering the price tag that this thing offers. But it's a big box and there's plenty in it. Now, this is very divisive. Some people have been loving this when they've been going off to play the various modules. I've only played one module. I can't remember exactly what it was. I got a feeling it was 163, I think. I remember it was a pick-up-and-deliver game. Uh, We were building roads and there were player powers or like special abilities that you could buy. I think it was 163. I'm sure somebody could correct me on that if I'm wrong. But I just found it really dry. All we did was build little roads on these tiles, send these little workers over, collect a good, go somewhere, put it down, and that was about it. And occasionally we'd buy a special ability that gave us a random ability. whoop de doo Okay, there may be some great modules in there, but this was not a good introduction for me to suddenly go, oh yeah, this is worth getting. Granted, you may have 504 games in this box, but if maybe like 10% of them are any good, it's going to take you a while to find those 10%. And even then, I don't want to have to trudge through a bunch of rubbish games in order to find the few that are actually really good. In the end, the components are still bland, the game is still pretty dry, it's just not worth it. I can think of many different Euro games that, okay, don't give me 500 combinations, but they're a good game. Therefore, I'll go play it. I'll go grab Caverna off the shelf. Yes, it's only one game, technically, but it's got enough variety in how it plays, and at least that one game is good. So I don't really get the whole appeal for this. I, I don't know. A lot of people are liking it, so that's great if you do. But I just was very underwhelmed by this first module that I ended up playing, and I now don't have any desire to play it again just to test the waters on other modules. It's just not worth my time, and there's plenty of other things I need to play anyway. So if you're one of these people that wants to check out the innovation behind it, then go ahead, because it is very innovative, and I might be putting this as my top spot for most innovative game of the year with the dice tower uh, feedback thing but um, I don't know I just did not really like this game much at all it's just not for me maybe maybe it's just a bit too dry but then I like Terra Mystica so I do like dry games this one just fell flat so 5-0 floor innovative but dull Uh, I do hate to rant about a game Actually, no, I don't. I like ranting about games, whether it's good or bad. But let's see if this fourth one can be any better. This one is by Stonemaier Games, and it was a massive hit on Kickstarter, because, big surprise, everything by Stonemaier Games basically funds with gusto on Kickstarter. But there's one thing I like about Stonemaier Games, is that they don't have to bring out a ton of miniatures in order to fund their games. It gets on my wick with Cool Mini or Not having all their games fund primarily, I believe, just because they put these awesome-looking miniatures out. 
but I've played a lot of cool Minionauts games, and yeah, a couple of them I really, really like, but then the rest of them are kind of meh. You know, I don't mind them, but they're not outstanding. Stonemire, on the other hand, seems to be on a bit of a roll at the moment, putting out these really cool, really interesting games, but without having to worry about mass miniatures. Granted, they'll put nice little wooden pieces in, like meeple-shaped or building-shaped, that kind of thing, and I think that's actually better, especially for a Euro game, than loads of miniatures that are probably wasted there. But anyway, I'm digressing. This one is Between Two Cities. It's a one to seven player game. Okay, I don't actually know how you're supposed to play this solo, but and certainly I wouldn't even think of playing it with less than three players, but there's probably a variant for that. But this goes up to seven players. We're talking Seven Wonders territory here. And we played a full... We played it, I think, two or three times, actually, and played full seven-player count, so we got everybody involved. And this is a drafting game, but not in the way that you would expect. The idea is is that it's a partnership-driven tile-drafting game. Each of you is building a city. In fact, you're building two cities, one on your left and one on your right. You'll build it with factories, shops, parks, landmarks, etc. And each of them will give you points depending on what sets you get them in or how you arrange them. So there's an element of spatial awareness, but there's also an element of set collection as well. But the cool thing is, is that you get given these tiles and you draft them around all the players... And when you score at the end, you score the lowest of the two cities that you've built. And there's your twist right there. Because now you have two cities that you're building that you are sharing also with two opponents. There is only one victor here, but the idea of scoring only your lowest city means that you have to build them both up in balance. You can't shove all the best point scoring things on one city because it won't be worth jack to you when it comes to scoring because the one that you let run down into the slums is going to be the one that you score. So you've got to build them both up and obviously that involves a bit of balancing and a little bit of negotiation with your various partners. It's quite cool where you have to decide, right, I could give them this tile because it's really helpful, but that city's already pretty good. I need to work on this one, so I'm going to deny them that one and focus a bit more on this city. And you're constantly thinking between the two. Now, there's only so many different types of tiles you can put in, so it's quite simplistic and the variety is a little bit low. But it plays very quickly. You could get this wrapped up in 20 minutes. The playing time is pretty accurate with this if people understand the concept of drafting. And if they don't, this is a really cool little game to get them introduced to drafting. Possibly I would put it at gateway game level. Obviously, Sushi Go is probably the go-to first game you ever do to teach someone how to draft. But Between Two Cities is a pretty good contender for the next step up. The components are, again, really nice. You get little wooden pieces for the houses. The tiles have got nice artwork on them. It's a very pretty game. But it's just a really neat idea of having to act in partnership with two players but yet only scored the lowest. So it kind of seems like a mix between something you would expect from Reiner Knizier, because he loves all that something scores the lowest of what you've got type mentality, and Seven Wonders, which is the whole keep an eye on what your neighbours are doing because you can filch off each other. So this was really neat. I don't think it's the best game ever. I think if I played it too much, I'd probably get bored of it eventually. So it would be a cool one to bring out every now and again. But it almost meets the filler territory I mean, maybe with new players, you might be cutting on to the half-hour mark, so it's not really essentially a filler. But if everyone knows what they're doing, you could whack this out in a fairly quick time. And this is for something that can go up to seven players, and because it's drafting, it doesn't take any longer because of it, because everyone works simultaneously. Neat little game. 
not the best thing that I think Stone Myers put out. I still love Viticulture and Euphoria a bit more. But this was a solid, solid game. And better than I expected it to be. So Between Two Cities by Stone Myers, give it a shot. Right, 2015, what a year it has been for games. Now, I could talk endlessly about the stuff that's been going on in 2015, and I know that a lot of you are wanting probably for me to talk about the recent Asmodee North America announcement of restricting their distribution rights. Now, to be fair, they have not released enough information on this, and certainly they've been mostly going on a bit of a PR thing at this point, and I don't have enough to really comment on it. I'm a little bit worried about what this is going to do particularly for something like the lcg market but we'll see what they say as more information comes to light so i'm not going to talk about that right now we'll see what that's like in the future i suspect we'll get some more news in the early part of 2016 so otherwise than that i'm going to look at some other things i've just i've noticed throughout this year what's 2015 been like well firstly it's been a pretty good year for games. I don't think that there's been a super smash hit. Now, I know a bunch of you sort of pandemic legacy lovers are going to shout at me saying, well, what about that one? Now, granted, looks interesting. I have the game. I have not played it. But I do think getting up to rank number two in the Board Game Geek rankings is pushing it a little bit too far, especially when the game isn't accessible to that many people because of its whole, like, you know, the price tag and the finite level of it. But I reckon it will still be a decent game. But really, I don't think that there was a game that for me personally was a super smash hit. But there was a lot of great games in general. There were lots of games that I rated an 8 this year, or at least a 7. So that's a lot of good games that I would happily play. There were a few 9s. There was no 10, but there was certain... I mean, I don't really give the 10 rating out very much. But there was a few 9s, and there was plenty of 7s and 8s. So there was a lot of good stuff this year. Granted, there was a lot of rubbish stuff as well, and I haven't played everything from 2015. But then again, neither have you. But... It's been pretty good all year round. Now, in terms of what publishers have been doing better than others, certainly, as much as I hate to admit it, Cool Mini or Not have been kind of dominating this year. They came out with Blood Rage, which was an absolute smash hit across the world. I mean, this one got so much hype. And if you want to check out my review on it, you may do so on the website. Suffice to say, I think it's good, but not quite deserving of so much hype. And already they've massively funded their next Arcadia Quest expansion. Pretty much everything they do at the moment is just funding and being really popular. So as much as I hate to admit it, Kulmini or not are really dominating this year. Now, other smaller publishers are certainly sinking their teeth in as well. Space Cowboys comes to mind. They don't release many games, but if you think about the last main three that they've released, they've all been pretty big hits. First up was Splendor. Now, Splendor is not my favourite game of all time, but you can't deny that that one was a massive seller, and I see that being played all the time, so i got to give it respect. Then the bigger hit after that was Elysium. Elysium's a great Euro game with some unique mechanics. I was privileged to play with the designer at the UK Games Expo this year, I believe. And it was a really cool game. And then on top of that, we have the recent Time Stories, which again, 
Hmm, I won't give any spoilers for now, but this was a massive big hit across the world as well because of the unique way it played out. It was almost like a sort of choose-your-own-adventure style game. So they've been really making a name for themselves as well. Speaking of names, one of the weirdest news stories of the year, when Mayfair decided that the settlers of Catan should be renamed as Catan, just Catan. I really don't get what they're thinking on that one. I mean, does it really make a difference whether you call it the Settlers of Catan or just Catan? Granted, it's a bit easier to say and spell, but other than that, there's not really much call for why they had to do it. Now it just makes all the previous editions of the game look weird, as they all say the Settlers of Catan, and now it's just called Catan. I still don't, I really don't get why they did it, but, uh, well... If I call it the Settlers of Catan, if anyone else calls it the Settlers of Catan, it's not like I'm going to hold them up with a gun and say, Oi, you should pronounce it properly, because let's face it, I'm probably going to pronounce it the Settlers of Catan anyway. Well, actually, then again, knowing me, I like to shorten names, so maybe I'll just factor into my subconscious somewhere to say Catan all the time. Themes during the year? Well, certainly Vikings and Pirates. Oh my god. It seems like every other game is about Vikings and Pirates. I mean, Vikings, for example, we've already had Blood Rage and Champions of Midgard. Pirates, we've had the uh, Roll, Battle and Loot, whatever it was called. Um, I forget. the. It was like a weird dice roll, the game that you used the box. We've had uh, Rum and Bones. Was it Rum and Bones or Rum... Was it Rum and Pirates or Rum and Bones? I can't remember. Uh, but it was the Call Me or Not game that basically had two players going head-to-head with ships and massive miniatures. Again, miniatures all funded and was still not the biggest hit ever. But some people are really enjoying it. But there just seems to be a resurgence with Vikings and Pirates. Lots of games are coming out with these two themes. Now, Pirates? I think we've had plenty enough pirate games in the past to not have to worry about them right now. But certainly I'm kind of glad to see Vikings make a bit of a resurgence, and not just in new games, but even reprints. Now, Vikings aren't my favourite theme of all time, but they're a decent theme, and I know a lot of people have been crying out for them, so it's nice to see that the publishers are listening and starting to effectively fill in the gap that's been there for a while. In terms of awards, the Spiel de Jahres was a big interest this year because the two main forerunners for it, Machi Koro and Colt Express, it was hard to tell which of the two I thought was going to win. Thankfully, the one that I wanted to win, Colt Express, managed to win it and I do think it's a cool little family game. Again, I prefer to play it with the gamer version where you've got the rules variant that gives you a bit less luck with how the programming works. But in general, for kids and that, they really get a kick out of that train. The 3D terrain is a nice little gimmick. I quite like the way it looks. And I think it was deserving of the Spill Diaris. Thank God Mighty Koro didn't win or I might have gone on a massive rant on a podcast just for the sake of it. Cannot stand that game. As for the other one that was just called The Game, I have no idea what that was and probably don't even care. I really don't get what that was about or why that was even in the running. I can think of a few other titles I would have rather put for Spiel de Yaris at this point. Ah well, irrelevant. Colt Express won it and as a train game, that's the kind of train game I want to play. Speaking of trains, hype. Hype trains. Whoa, my god, this year has been crazy for hype trains, hasn't it? We've already had releases like Blood Rage, massive hype. 
And like you could not go anywhere without hearing about it. We had hype for Pandemic Legacy. The hype is still on for that game. It's still ongoing, the hype for that one. Time Stories had an unbelievable amount of hype at Essen alongside Pandemic Legacy. And even on Kickstarter, the amount of hype for Scythe by Stonemaier Games. I mean, I tried a brief interlude of it during Essen. I thought it was alright, it's got potential, but my god, everyone was going crazy over this game. I don't get it. Because I don't remember this kind of hype being so prominent in past years. I mean, yeah, some games have been like, oh yeah, this is going to be the next best thing. But my god, everybody's just gone crazy over some games this year. And I'm baffled as to why this year in particular. Because there have been some really cool games that were on Kickstarter last year that have come out and been like, oh, these are really cool games. But I don't remember them getting anywhere near the love and hype pre-release that these ones have been getting. It's kind of weird, but I like to think of myself as the gamer who takes on the hype train face-on, like stands in front of the train as it's coming and says, bring it on, I'll find out the truth. And certainly I've enjoyed the reviews that I've done with that. And, well, you're going to be seeing Time Stories come out very soon, although, to be honest, you're going to hear me talk about that in a little bit. But certainly with Pandemic Legacy, I cannot wait to get that one played and see how well that lives up to the hype. Most of the time, games don't live up to the hype, so I'd better have some defences put up by the time I get round to Pandemic Legacy. Unless I think it is the best game ever, in which case, great. But it's one of those things, like, you remember with Max, uh, Mad Max Fury Road when that came out? I thought it was an entertaining film. I thought it was really good, even though it has basically no plot, fairly dull characters apart from one or two, and is basically just one big Roadrunner cartoon at the end of the day, but I still found it entertaining. Problem is, with that film, if you said it was good, but not fantastic and the best thing of all time, everyone hated you for it. It's getting the same with some of these board games. If I turn around and say Pandemic Legacy is good, that won't be enough for some people. They want me to say it's excellent and amazing and a fantastic game all round. Well, we'll soon find out when I actually get around to playing the thing. As for other games that have made a resurgence in year, I would certainly say that Euros have been coming back. There's been quite a few Euro games released this year, some very popular among gamers. And, yeah, to be fair, I think we could do with a few more of those, because a lot of the Amerifresh stuff that has come out has not always been that entertaining. But we've had a bit of a mix, but I would certainly say that Euros have definitely come back this year. As for other crazes, well, let's see, one, oh yes, of course, legacy, the word legacy, and I don't just mean the, like, legacy as the word, I mean games where they have a finite life but then change over time, or change as you play. Is it me, or is there a bit of a resurgence in this as well, because we had Risk Legacy, which was a cool concept, and now suddenly everybody wants to slap the word legacy on their game, or at least in some format. Time Stories technically isn't legacy, but the game evolves as you play it and then has a finite life. So it's similar. Pandemic Legacy is, well, Pandemic Legacy. You rip up stickers, you affect the board, and the whole thing changes, and then by the time you're finished playing it, that's kind of it, you can't really play it anymore. And even some Euro games tried to slap the word legacy on their game to say, oh, this is loads of modules in this game, and you can play it in a legacy outback, sorry, outback, in a legacy aspect where the winner of the previous game will choose the modules to put in the next game. And yeah, get over yourself, Stonemaier, seriously. Tuscany Expansion was not a legacy game, end of story. Don't try to put the word legacy on it. 
But yeah, everyone seems to be going crazy with this whole legacy thing. And to be fair, I like the legacy mechanic. I like the way that games evolve over time. But having games constantly have a finite life... If everyone starts hopping on this bandwagon, that could be a bit of a problem if suddenly all the games we buy start having finite lives just because you've played through the story and then can't do anything else. So we'll see whether that continues on to 2016, but this year I certainly think everyone was going a little bit crazy with the whole legacy thing. And finally, as a quick note, I've certainly noticed a lot more organised play events coming around. It's not just Fantasy Flight, although they have been really pushing their organised play events, but Asmo Play have been going on with their Splendour, Cash and Guns and Seven Wonders events. Not quite sure how you do an organised play with Cash and Guns, but oh well, it's just a party game at the end of the day. But, oh well, it's cool if it's getting people into it. Seven Wonders would make a very good organised play, and I suppose Splendour would as well. And I know Wizards of the Coast have also been doing some organised play with their Dice Masters collection. But certainly, yeah, I've seen a lot of organised play kits coming out. Fantasy Flight have been doing very well with the Netrunner Winter Kits. And, to be fair, the last weekend, uh, Saturday, I was in a Game of Thrones 2nd Edition winter kit tournament at my local store i came third out of 16 which i thought was quite impressive despite mainly playing against the same faction all day but never mind third is third and that was a game of thrones second edition winter kit so they're certainly pushing them out and they are enjoyable and a good way to get people into some competitiveness with regards to the lcgs in particular but certainly some other games as asthma play are doing them what this asthma day north america thing is suddenly going to do for that who knows but we'll get on to that another day For now, I think that's it for 2015 as a whole. It was generally a very good year. Probably one of the best years that's happened for board games in the last few. Whether it was the best, I don't know. Certainly a lot of good games have come out this year. But we'll have to think on that one. It's certainly one of the best, if not the best. So we'll put it that way. For now, let's get on to the top 10 list that you've been waiting for. The top 10 games, in my opinion of 2015. So here it is, which games have surpassed the others to be my top 10 of 2015? Now just a couple of caveats, one obviously I have not played every single game from 2015 and secondly this may be the only list you see out of all the reviewers where the words pandemic and legacy don't appear in the title. Well that's because I haven't played it yet therefore I can't really say whether it's the best of the year or not. Maybe that's a good thing in itself, I mean I've not played it yet so I don't know what it's going to be like but it would be nice to actually have a chart that doesn't have that already in it. So we'll see how things go with that when I get around to doing it but for now this is my definitive top 10 as of now as of the 22nd of December 2015 let's get started number 10 one of the best two-player games to come out this year but not the best there'll be another one later But this one was a really good hit for me, and it's so simple, it's just Raptors vs. Scientists with simultaneous card play. Yep, this is Raptor by Bruno Fiduti and Bruno Kafala. 
Seriously, I think the two Brunos and Antoine Bolzer can rarely do any wrong when it comes to games, particularly when they collaborate with each other. Certainly, Bruno Kafala and Antoine Bolzer have been on a roll lately, and even Fadudi's coming out with some pretty good stuff as well. But this one is a nice little simple premise. You have the raptors versus the scientists. The scientists are trying to capture three raptor babies. Think of it like a prequel to Jurassic Park. The raptor mother is trying to get her babies to safety cool little theme there. You've got a modular tile board with these little basic miniatures for the scientists and the raptors. It's cool playing a raptor, I must admit, having this little raptor figure. That's all raptors sound like, you should notice by now if you've watched enough Jurassic Park films, they all sound like that. And it's just a cool little simultaneous card play game where you have these nine cards in your deck, three of them in your hand, and the idea is is that you play them simultaneously with your opponent, and whoever plays the lowest value, because they're numbered 1 to 9, gets the special action on the card. Whoever plays the highest value gets the difference in the values as action points to spend on their turn, doing various things unique to their side. So it's an asymmetrical game. The simultaneous card play means that you have to think what your opponent's likely to play and judge whether you want the special ability or the action points that round. It's a really cool little two-player game, and it had to make my top ten of the year. Granted, this was a great year for games, so don't worry if your game doesn't get mentioned on this list. It doesn't mean it was rubbish. It's just this was a really good year, and trust me, Adam, hard time putting this list together there was a lot of good stuff that could have made it but raptor squeaks onto the top 10 as one of the best two-player games that has come out probably in the time i've been doing board gaming but certainly one of the best this year raptor Number 9 is technically a sequel, but it's still a decent game in its own right, and you don't have to have the base game in order to play this one. And like I say, it's not really a base game, it's, they're both standalone. Now, Upper Deck have been making a killing with the Legendary series, and Alien Legendary, if you remember my top 10 games ever, made my number 2. I really like the Alien Legendary game. Well, making my number 9 this year, so this one made a pretty good impact as well, is Legendary Predator. Now, this one I don't think is as good as the Alien one, but that might be slightly to do with the fact that I prefer the Alien franchise. Now, that could bias it a little bit. But I still think that the scenarios that you do in the Alien Saga box are more thematic. I think that the characters are more interesting in there. And there was more scenarios in general for the co-op mode, which is my favourite way to play it. Granted, the PvP mode is pretty cool as well, but co-op is where it's at. Now, this one is still a decent game. The co-op mode is still sound. Playing against Predators is really cool. The fact that you can now combine Alien versus Predator is really neat. And, like I said, the PvP mode is a nice little addition. And rather than the traitor mode in Alien, which was just tacked on for the sake of it, this one wasn't tacked on. This was thought about. So if you've played any Legendary game before, you know that this is a deck builder. You're working together to beat the deck as it chucks out all this nasty stuff at you. In this case, it's loads of different Predators although there is one big mother predator at the end as I like to call it and essentially you play it much like the other legendary games you're a co-op team working together to beat the deck by completing the various objectives it's a really cool game in its own right granted it's not as good as alien but I still think it was a solid hit so legendary predator meets a deserved number nine
Number 8 is a game that I wasn't expecting to like this much. I mean, it was an anime style for artwork. It was made by a company who I don't play many of their games, but I do remember Pixel Tactics being a really good two-player game. And it just sounded like it was going to be a massive brain burner, so I wasn't sure what to make of it. But Argent the Consortium was a lot better than I gave it initial credit for. Argent the Consortium is... I like to call it Hogwarts the board game. Essentially, the dean of a wizard school has died and now they're trying to choose a successor. A consortium of voters have their own agenda as to what they're looking for, but all the agendas that they have are hidden from the players at the start of the game, bar maybe one to each player. And the idea is is that it's sort of worker placement. You place your mages, your workers, on these various room tiles at different places to get various resources that can allow you to get spells that you can upgrade, that can enlist supporters to your cause, that allow you to flip over some of those agendas in secret so you can see, oh yeah, he's looking for that one, for example. You know, This one is looking for gold, this one is looking for spells, this one is looking for a particular type of supporter, that sort of thing. And there's so much variety in this game. I mean, it is a brain burner in its own right because of the sheer amount of options you have. You've got at least something like 12 different rooms you can go to. You've got all the spells that can upgrade to multiple levels. You've got the items, some of which are one use only, some are ongoing. You've got the supporters that give you bonuses. It's ridiculous how many options you have in game. And then to top that off, everything has a B-side to it. If you remember in Seven Wonders where the Wonders had a B-side that was slightly more complicated, the same thing happens here. All the rooms, you don't even use all the rooms in each game. And they all have an A and B side. All the workers have a B side. Because the workers have a special ability that goes off when you place the worker whilst it's on the board. And there's a B side ability as well. I've never seen that before. Workers with special abilities that have a B side for abilities as well. That's insane. And the spells, multiple levels. You get a level 1 spell and then you can decide whether you want to research the next level and then the level after that. It's a really cool game. Now granted it's difficult to get to the table and it is one hell of a table hog. This will take up all the space and then some. You need one big table for this. It may be a bit too much for some people in terms of its brain burner factor but and it's not the easiest to teach but this is a really cool game if you can get the right people to play it with you. I really liked it and granted brain burner not easy to teach so it can't quite go higher up the list as a result, but still, I really liked it. Argon the Consortium. Number 7 is not so much a reprint, but more a complete revamp of an original game that was popular for many, many years and many, many expansions and many, many tournaments and cycles. I never got to try the Game of Thrones version 1, apart from a couple of games when people were just showing me how it played. Then, Game of Thrones version 2 came out. And that became my entry point into the franchise. Version 2 of Game of Thrones, I mean... I think it's called Game of Thrones 2nd Edition LCG to give it the full title. It allows people to now get into what is a very good game. The two player it's an LCG, so again, it doesn't have that collectible aspect. You know, you can just buy what cards you want, and now that there's only literally a core set and one chapter pack released at the moment, now's a good time to get into it. 
but the two-player aspect of it is a cool head-to-head thing where you're issuing using your characters that are all from the series and the books to issue challenges to each other for intrigue, military, and power that have different effects if you win or lose them. It's a really cool tactical, tactical and even slightly strategic game that is already good enough in its own right as a two-player. But what bumps it into this top 10 is the melee format. The melee format, this is the only LCG with a multiplayer aspect to it. Call of Cthulhu doesn't have multiplayer. Uh, the Warhammer 40,000 Conquest does not have multiplayer. Netrunner is only two player. Lord of the Rings technically is multiplayer, but that's a co op. That's a different story. But this is the only competitive multiplayer LCG that exists, and it's a great format. You have at least three, if not anywhere up to six odd players. I think I don't know how high you can go, but certainly you can easily get a three, four, or five player game done nice and easily. And the rules are the same. You're issuing challenges, but as well as having to deal with multiple opponents, you have these title cards that are passed around at the start of each round. And two are taken out of random, so you can't keep spamming the same one over and over again. And they give you a special bonus for the round. They're like Master of Coin and Master of Laws and Master of Ships, that kind of thing. And on top of that, they ro- some of the, the titles rival other titles, which means you get additional rewards for wailing on that player in the round. But some of them also support each other, which means you can't attack them at all. And the thought process of having to decide what ability and bonus you want versus who you think you're going to attack that turn for extra rewards or who you don't want to attack you for getting the one that supports your particular title. And then because these are taken in turn order, you know, some have got more choices than others. You might have to decide, oh, if I take this one, is he likely to take that one? In which case he supports me, which means I don't have to worry about attacks from him. It's This is the sort of thought process that goes through your head every time you take those titles. And it's so cool. You've got negotiation at its purest as you try to get other players to leave you alone and go attack someone else. Or when somebody gets too powerful, everyone starts wailing on them in order to bring them back down to balance while you sneak in your own agenda. It's really good. I really like this melee format. Now, as a two-player game, it's pretty good. I still enjoy it and I happily play it. But I really love this for the melee format and I would happily play as many melee games as I can. Granted, I've got a lot to learn about being good at this game, but we'll see how that goes in the future. So Game of Thrones 2nd Edition, number 7. Number 6 is not the first co-op to make this list. We already had Legendary Predator. But this is definitely a co-op in its own right, and some people would call it a party game as well. I'm not sure I'd go that far. I think it's a bit complicated for a party game. But it takes the same mechanic that an old party game had and couples it with great artwork and an interesting premise. That is Mysterium. Mysterium is a co-op game that borrows the same mechanic from Dixit. Dixit was a party game where you had this storyboard, sorry, these cards with storyboard artistry on them. And you had to give clues about the image and people had to guess which image was yours whilst putting in their own to throw people off the scent. It was a really cool party game. Mysterium takes that to the next level. You have a ghost who is well, <laughs> a ghost who has died, I was about to say. Basically, someone has died, and the ghost is communicating with the other players that are psychic detectives. The ghost is trying to get the psychic detectives to find out who was the murderer in very much a Cluedo-style format. So you need the weapon, you need the person, you need the location. But the way that he communicates is by giving them these Dixit-style storyboard artistry cards 
that link to the particular man, weapon, and location that that player is responsible for. When they get through to the very end, they then have to work together to figure out, based on more Dixit cards, what the actual person who did it was and where they were and what they used. So it's very much like Cluedo. But the way this has that Dixit element to it, it's very thematic in the way that it's portrayed in this game. But it also means that it's no pushover. This really requires some creative thinking because the ghost is sitting there, tense as anything, because he can't talk. He can't talk to the other players. All he can do is give the cards. And the people there are discussing, like, ooh, perhaps he means this. Maybe that relates to that. Oh, yeah, I see that. Yeah, that's got to be that. And you are sitting there biting your nails and scratching the table surface because they've gone off on a tangent that wasn't what you were thinking of or you're relieved to see that someone's on the same wavelength as you until someone talks them out of it. It's so tense being the ghost, but it's so enjoyable. But even if I'm not the ghost, I enjoy playing the deduction aspect as well as you're trying to think, what is the ghost trying to tell me with these weird and wonderful images? It's a brilliant idea very cool way to incorporate the Dixit mechanism into a whole different board game. Number six, Mysterium. And now for number five, Fantasy Flight Games is taking their shine to the list with a game that released at the very start of this year in a period which is normally known for board game drought. I had never played the computer game that this game was based on, but this game made me want to try it, even though it's now the end of 2015 and I've never actually got around to try it. Well, I've got not enough time in my hands, but maybe the sequel coming out next year will put pay to that problem. Of course, if you are a fan of the franchise and you know this game, you already know what I'm talking about, XCOM, the cooperative game. This one was a really neat little idea where it took the elements of XCOM, where you had the miniatures getting into combat, you had the aliens flying over the world and shooting down your... Uh, fighter planes, and gives each person a role, a unique role, scientist, central officer, commander, and squad officer, I think it's called, or something like that, and introduces a timed element. First of all, the app. Oh yeah, this was one of the first few games, I know there have been others, but this was one of the first few games that got the app treatment exactly right. The app basically took you through the game, sprouting out all these different things that each role had to do at various times within a very short space of time. Like the commander has to quickly allocate which fighter planes he wants around the world, or the scientist has to choose which tech cards he wants to research this round. The squad leader has to quickly decide which person, which mission they're going to choose, and how many people they're going to devote to base defense. And then once all that's done and the stress is over, you then have to resolve all those, and then rinse and repeat in future rounds until either you complete the final mission, or you all die, or the world goes into full panic. It's a great little game, and the app is superb. The app does a great job in putting you in the theme, being slick, being pretty much bug-free in its entirety, and even having an indexed rulebook on there, which really helps when you've got like a frequently asked question that you need to debate over. I think more games could benefit from using app treatment such as this, but we haven't seen much of it this year, and I was kind of hoping for that when I did the 2014 roundup last year. I thought we would see a bit more app treatment, but apparently that doesn't seem to be the case so far, but we'll see what happens in the future. But for now, XCOM, 
great cooperative game. You have to like timed games in order to get an appreciation for this. And I don't normally like timed games, but I think it works in this instance. It works with this co-op atmosphere, and it's so rewarding when you beat it, because it is hard. It will beat you down relentlessly until you rise up and fight against it. And the fact that you can pick a different role each game means that you can play it differently. And believe me, playing this solo is one of the most stressful yet fun experiences I've had. So, XCOM number 5. Number four, and we're on to the second brain burner on this list. A second brain burner, Euro, no less. Yes, I do like Euros that involve taxing the old brain cells a bit. I don't just like all the simple stuff. Sometimes I really want to get into a big Euro that really tests my strategic sense and gives me a good theme while I'm at it. The designer of this game, Vital Lacerda, has been on a bit of an oncoming role with me. Now, I haven't yet played most of his games. I really want to try Vinos. I have CO2 in my possession, I just haven't got round to trying it. But I really, really enjoyed Kanban Automotive Revolution. It is one of my favourite Euros, if not the, my, if not the favourite Euro I have to date. And this one is the next outing by him, which is The Gallerist. The Gallerist is a big brain burner Euro where you are running an art gallery and buying selected works of art, promoting artists and investing in the international market to promote the fame of your artists, to increase the value of your work so you're buying and selling and essentially keep your art gallery in good shape. It's a really neat game with fairly simplistic rules in terms of how the turn order works but a lot to consider in terms of whether promoting this artist will get me this art which will allow me to sell it for this much and how will that affect this there's a lot of ways to play the game so far i haven't seen a domineering strategy but it's there's a good variety in this game and the theme is very strong granted an art gallery is not the first theme i would want to pick but it works here and i still enjoy it the components are stellar really good thick tiles thick cardboard stock the cards are all linen finished the board artwork looks nice clean and crisp it's just really nice looking this game and deserves the price point it has but as a game it's also a great one for testing your brain cells it's great with three or four players even though you must accept that it's going to be a long game with four players especially if anyone ap's like crazy but the variable end game timers the fact that the art artists that you use are slightly different each game not terribly but slightly different and the fact that you've got multiple ways of winning this was just a big surprise that i would like it as much as i did so kanban the gallerist i can't wait to try more that vital lacerda has to offer the gallerist makes my number four Number three, and well, if you heard the spoilers and figured out, yes, you knew this one was coming, particularly if you saw my recent review of it in the last week. This was the best two-player game to come out this year. And when I two-player game, I say the best two-player only game to come out this year. And that is Seven Wonders Duel. Seven Wonders is already a really good game, and I think it's still in my top 20. I definitely put it in my top 20 in the last chart, and I would certainly put it in there now as long as i'm playing it with all the expansions i've got it expanded all the way up to the end and it needs them 
Granted, I still play the base game, but I think with the expansions it really shines. Seven Wonders Duel takes this variant that was in the base game, which nobody really cared about to my knowledge. I certainly didn't think it was any good, and brings in this little twist that allows you to play it with only two players. The idea being that you are drafting the cards from this weird layout that you have in each age, and the Seven Wonders mechanics are all still there, you know, the brown and greys give you resources, the yellow gets you extra little tradey things, the green is science, the red is military, but there's a few twists to the game that really make this one shine. For starters, you now have multiple winning conditions. Yes, you can get to the very end and total up points, which is generally the most common way it ends, but you also have the military track where you buy the red cards and it moves this little counter along which reduces the money your opponent has, but if you get it to the very end, you win automatically. And science has a similar thing. You collect the green cards for science, which if you get pairs of symbols, you get these little bonus tiles that help you during the game. Or if you can get six out of the seven available symbols, then you automatically win. And those two victory conditions, even though they don't happen as often as the points one, still keep you thinking. Because you can't just ignore them. If you ignore them, your opponent's going to grab them and they will go off and win. You've got to take some of these cards to stop them getting an automatic victory condition. But all the while that you're drafting cards, because of the way they're laid out, as you take one, other options are available for the next person. So you've got to think, if I take that, he's going to get that. He might have that option. But I really want that card, so maybe I should let him have this one and then I can get that one? Or is there a way that I can get two turns in a row with the wonders that you build and see how that works? Lots to think about. Lots of great choices. This is a brilliant way to make Seven Wonders accessible for two players and is one of the best two-player games I've ever played. There are this, this is up there on the same levels as Innovation. You know, Innovation is one of my favourite two-player games. This is up there on that type of level. I think it's a really good card game. Certainly the best card game that I think's come out this year. Great fun. Love it to bits. Seven Wonders Duel. Thumbs up. Number two. And I suppose this is going to end up as a bit of a spoiler for the upcoming review. And I must admit, I never thought I would want to put this game so high because I thought this has got to have been overhyped like crazy. So I'm going to take on the hype train and I'm going to find out the truth. Well, the truth is... This game is amazing. This is a really, really cool game. Its main flaws, though, are the fact that it is finite. The fact that once you have played through a given scenario or card pack, that's it. You can't play it again, and you probably never will play it again, but you can play through future modules which will give you a similar setup. Granted, that's a bit of a costly experience, and I must admit, if I earned, if I wasn't, you know, fairly okay for cash at the moment I would certainly be hesitant on continuing with it and I can understand why it will put a lot of people off but for an evening where we just sat down and plowed through the entire scenario in one night taking several hours this was some of the most fun I'd had in a board game this year and of course you already know it it's time stories I didn't think I would like it this much and I agree that it being this level of finite is a bit of a problem that does hinder the game, certainly for a wide audience. But for what we experienced, I won't give away any spoilers, but put it this way, the Asylum, which is the first 
uh, scenario you play through was really entertaining. It's got some graphic imagery that I certainly wouldn't recommend for kids, but otherwise, if you're one of these people like me who used to take those fighting fantasy, like choose your own adventure books, this is basically choose your own adventure in a board game. And the scenarios are going to come out, they're going to be different, the artwork's going to change between them, and the theme is going to change between them, but the way this works is so innovative. I mean, this is on borderline with the 504 thing. The way that the scenario plays out with just a deck of cards where it has items, it has locations which are panoramic pictures and how these other cards are like different viewpoints for when you go to particular areas in the picture and the fact that you can move from location to location and you flip out more cards and you just play through this wonderful little adventure that you have to solve the puzzle. It's effectively like one giant puzzle game. It's really neat on how it works. Now, granted, I warn you, the rulebook is not great. The rulebook has some ambiguities, and in one or two cases, it's actually just downright wrong because they had to translate it from French. Now, the main reason I got to enjoy this game a lot was because Paul Grogan, my mate, was very kind to act as a bit of a hotline for giving them a ring and just clarifying some weird rules. Not to mention, he's also done an unofficial FAQ on Board Game Geek. I strongly urge you that if you are about to play Time Stories, you should go onto Board Game Geek and search for the unofficial fact within the forums for Time Stories, because it will help you a great deal. Now, that aside, the game is really, really good. This is one of the ones where the hype was justified. Now, granted, best game of all time? I don't know. The fact that it's finite is going to hurt it somewhat. And I'll be a bit miffed when it gets to a point where it's like, I've kind of played it, I can't do much else with it. But it's going to be one of those things where each time I play it, it's going to be really enjoyable. I really enjoyed it. I was hooked into it from start to finish. We managed to beat the scenario and we felt good for doing it and we had great fun doing it. It was a it, it's a really cool co-op. What more can I say about it? Time stories deserved. Number 2. Before we get to my number 1, here are some honorable mentions. Celestia, a game that has been very popular with friends and new gamers alike. It's a push your luck game that I would say is the push your luck gateway game of choice. A reprint of Cloud9 that has great components, great artwork and is nice and simple and quick. More of these games are needed and this one is a good one. Champions of Midgard. This could be regarded as a Lords of Waterdeep killer, although I'm still on the fence about that. But this is a nice, simple worker placement game that uses that Viking theme, which has certainly been resurgence this year, and takes it to a really cool level. It's not difficult, it's not difficult to learn, it's not difficult to play, but it has dice that act as your fighters, and you get to do what Vikings do, which is go out and kill monsters. Working against the other players, it's a really cool little simple worker placement game, Champions of Midgard. Elysium. 
I had the privilege of playing this with the designer Matthew Dunstan at the UK Games Expo 2015, and this is a great Euro game, featuring a unique mechanic where you are drafting cards from the centre tableau into your own tableau, but the cards that you get are dictated by the four colour pillars on your board, and as you take a card, you must get rid of a pillar, which reduces the amount of cards that you can get in future turns. You have to be really careful about which cards you take for your own needs, what cards you leave for your opponents, but also what pillars you're going to have left in order to facilitate your future rounds in that turn. It's a really cool Euro game, good components again, good artwork, certainly a bit of a mixed bag because there's different artwork for the different uh, gods that you use, but this is a really unique Euro game and I urge you to try it out. But hold on a minute. It didn't make my number one. Time Stories didn't make my number one. And Pandemic Legacy is not on the list? What could possibly have made my number one then, you might ask? I wonder if any of you have guessed it, because I certainly haven't given any spoilers at all this entire episode, or even recently, to say what it might be. Well, saying that, I haven't given out any spoilers unless you've been listening to the Dice Tower podcast recently, in which case you would have probably heard that my number one was mentioned on there. My number one was by Fantasy Flight Games. It has taken the Warhammer 40k license and done it justice. It is not only a brain burner game, it's also an Amerifresh brain burner game with great components, great theme and just really cool down-to-earth strategic gameplay and that is Forbidden Stars. Forbidden Stars is a hit. It's Chaos in the Old World did the Warhammer license justice. This is what does the 40k license justice. You have your four different races. They all play differently. You have different units with different miniatures. You have your combat deck, which is a starter set to begin with, which is different from everyone else's. And then you can upgrade and replace cards in your battle deck, which again are different from other players, but also unique to you. And you can build it in different ways during the game. You don't have to go for certain upgrades. You could leave them out and try something different. So the variety is really strong. The races play out very differently. The artwork is great as always. It is Fantasy Flight at the end of the day. And this one just really worked well for me. I enjoyed it with three players. I enjoyed it with four players. I granted the two player is pretty good as well. I prefer it with more. I like the aspect that you have more players to deal with. But the two player is still really good as well. If you want a strategic head to head as opposed to a quick two player head to head. But certainly I think. The best I've ever played this is with free players. It's that right balance of length and strategic gameplay whilst having enough interaction. This was great. It was a surefire hit for me. I already thought that I was going to enjoy this and I was not proved wrong. It's a great space combat strategic game with dice rolling, with upgradable cards, with plenty of variety, with cool miniatures... It's a fantastic game and one that's going to sit nicely on my shelf, just begging me for me to get to the table more often. Because that's kind of its main flaw. The fact that it is a bit difficult to get to the table, it's very much an event game. Kind of like a mini TI free light, even though there are a lot of differences between the two. So, Forbidden Stars, my number one game of 2015, doing the 40k license justice.
And that wraps up 2015. When you next hear from me, it will be 2016 January when episode 40 is released. As for what I'm going to talk about then... I don't entirely know. Maybe I'll look on to what I'm expecting in 2016. Certainly I'll do some first impressions. Maybe it's about time I did another one of those One More Game segments. That would be pretty good as well. But certainly one of the main things that I definitely want to do in January is my top 10 gateway games. This is a list I've wanted to do for a long time and I'm going to set it in stone that I am doing it in January. This is a list that I think is very useful not only to gamers that are already well aware of these but certainly to some of you newer gamers who haven't yet tried out some of these and need something to say oh this is a really cool way to get into that particular type of game. So I reckon this will be a very useful and informative list and I strongly urge you if you're a new gamer to check out the episode 40 when I release it in January. But for now, that's it for me. Hopefully I'll be getting this episode uploaded on the 23rd of December just in time for Christmas. Of course you'll be wanting to do other things on Christmas Day than listen to my podcast but maybe as you're travelling home to visit the family you'll have enough time just to whip this on your CD player and check my podcast out. But even if you don't, I hope that some of you will. So that's it for me for 2015. I wish you all a very happy Christmas and a fantastic new year. I look forward to seeing you all in 2016, where I hope that in personal life terms and in board gaming terms, the year will be even better than this one. So take care. That's it from me. See you in the new year. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to The Broken Meeple. Thank you for your continued support. If you wish to check out more of my work, you can find my website at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. You can also find me on Twitter at The Broken Meeple, and also check out my Facebook page. The music used in this podcast has been kindly provided by CMA Music. I'm Luke Hector, you take care, and enjoy the hobby.